Good morning. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I picked up a cold this week, and so I got here this morning, and I took some cold medicine. And, uh, you know, that always makes your brain a little bit fuzzy. And I was <clears throat> scheduled to play piano with the worship team, which I, I don't hardly ever do. But uh, during the first service, I went up on stage, and then I realized I forgot to bring my Bible up. So I quick... I uh, talked to Jesse and I was like, go down and grab a Bible while we're singing. And um, so anyway, that's where my brain's at this morning. It's just been one of those kind of mornings. And so if my sermon doesn't make sense, uh, just smile and nod. Uh, <clears throat> I have a few announcements um, that I want to share with you before we get started into the message. How many of you got a text message last week saying that you were subscribed to something and you're like, I didn't subscribe to anything. Anybody get a strange text message like that? This not a conspiracy theory. Uh, it didn't come from the government or the NSA. Uh, it was me. And it was an accident. I was trying to send out a blast, a text message blast. Our, our church database system has the ability to blast out text messages. And the way that I understood it was supposed to work is it would only send to people that had subscribed. And if you hadn't subscribed, you wouldn't get the message. And I thought, well, we've got about 50 people that have subscribed. And so I'll just remind them that we only have one service uh, last week. We, we only had the second service because we baptized 16 people. Amen. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. So that's a lot of fun. But I didn't realize it was going to text message everybody and subscribe you if you hadn't subscribed. So we're not going to spam you. In fact, if you don't want to receive those text messages, you can go back and reply stop to that message you got last week or, or just do nothing because we're not going to text message you unless you subscribe. And so if you're interested in subscribing, you'll get an email this week with a link and you can fill out the little form and then you'll get added to the list of safe to text people. Um, and basically the only thing we're going to do with that is if we have snow and we need to cancel the service or change the time, we'll send out a text message blast and let everybody know, hey, there's no church today or whatever. Uh, or if we have something like, oh, by the way, we're canceling the first service and combining for a celebration Sunday or something like that. Otherwise, we're not going to text out announcements or, hey, don't forget to, to give or whatever. Um, that's not what the text message thing is for. So if you, want, if you want to sign up, get weather updates, emergency type updates, you can do that uh, via the link in your email that you'll get this week. Uh, and if you don't sign up, we won't text you again. So I apologize for that. Uh, it is our 75th anniversary year. And we've done a lot of things to celebrate the faithfulness of God. As we're co coming cl to a close on the year, we want to um, do something we're calling Stones of Remembrance. So uh, if you've been around Lakeview the last few years, usually we do a Lenten devotional. And we have people from the congregation write the daily devotionals. And we put them into a book and we give the book out and we go through that together as a church family during the Lenten season. Uh, this year, instead of doing devotionals, we want to collect your God stories. Times when God has provided for you, times when God has protected you, times when God has spoken to you or healed you or answered a prayer, how you came to faith in Jesus, all of these different kinds of God stories. We want you to send them to us. Uh, you can do that online. You can, um, there's a form, paper form out at the Welcome Center. You can pick up and write it if you want to handwrite it. But I want you to give your stories to us. We're going to collect these stories over the next month, compile them into a book, and that's what we'll give out as the Lenten devotional this year. Uh, so we can celebrate God's faithfulness with real stories from our brothers and sisters in Christ, which I think is really cool. Um, 
Thanksgiving boxes are due back today. We'll be delivering those to Sand Hill Elementary School this week. Uh, so bring those groceries back. Uh, and then if you pick, if you grabbed one of these on your way in, it looks like a bulletin. On the inside, there are a couple of uh, weeks worth of Bible reading plan with some reflection questions. On the back, there's a holiday ministry calendar. We're about a month out from Christmas, which is crazy. Uh, but so we just, here's the, here are the things that are coming up and I wanna point out a couple of them. We've got uh, church worship and prayer night on November 29th hosted by the youth group. And so uh, come out for that. The, the students will be leading us in worship and prayer. Those are always fun to do. Um, and then we've got a ladies tea at Lake Wabisa Bible Camp coming up. Um, this year, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday. And so we will have our normal Sunday morning worship services on Christmas Eve, but we will not have a Christmas Eve night service because we'll all be here on Sunday morning. So what we're going to do instead of a Christmas Eve night service is on December 20th at 6.30, we're going to have an old-fashioned Christmas hymn sing. Um, we think that the church is a spiritual family. Families are multi-generational. Every family has Christmas traditions. And so uh, we want to celebrate with our multi-generational church family and, and have fun with some Christmas traditions. Uh, and so what we're gonna do is we'll get together, we'll sing the old Christmas carols, and to make it fun, we're inviting everybody to dress up in old-fashioned costumes. Okay, I was expecting like a, it's a Christmas, it's a Christmas costume hymn sing. It's going to be so much fun. Um, so we'll come together. We'll have cider and cookies and hot chocolate and fun things like that. And we will be together as a family. We'll sing some carols. We'll have our, our costumes. If you don't have a costume, that's okay. Uh, just come anyway. It'll be a lot of fun. But um, that's on December 20th. And I think that is everything that I have to announce. Um, a couple of Sundays from now, December 3rd, we have the gingerbread house building. That was the one I missed. Uh, so that's after the second service. But um, yeah, okay. Um, there we go. If you'll find in your Bibles Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two, while you're finding that, how many of you guys have ever flown in an airplane? Okay, most of you. And when you, when you get on the plane, they play the little video that's like the flight attendant instructions and they tell you where the emergency exits are because naturally if your plane's gonna crash, we all just wanna jump out. Uh, I don't know. But uh, they tell you where those are. And then they say, in the event of uh, needing oxygen masks, the oxygen mask will fall out of the ceiling. And what do they tell you to do? Put your own mask on first and then help the person next to you with their mask because if you're trying to help them with their mask and you pass out before they get theirs on, then you're both dead. And so they say put your own mask on first and you should do that when you're flying on an airplane. However, that idea that, that you should put yourself first is not how we were designed by God to live in every context. On airplanes, yes, but in every context of life, no, and that's not really how our society uh, is structured. Our society tells us to put yourself first all the time, to put yourself ahead of, uh, of others. To, and in fact, self-care is one of the biggest industries in the United States. Billions and billions and billions of dollars every year are spent on self-care as an industry, right? And, and society tells us the most important thing in life is self-actualization. You have Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and at the top of the pyramid, the most important thing that you could ever accomplish as a human being is to 
actualize yourself. Self-actualization, right? Society says that, and, and therefore, um, if self-actualization is the highest need in life, then the highest value in life is personal freedom. Personal autonomy. Remove any limits to you being whatever you want to be, doing whatever you want to do, getting whatever you want to have, spending your time however you want to spend your time, whatever limits that might exist on your personal freedom, remove those limits. Because personal autonomy is the highest good and value in life according to our society. Do whatever you want, be whatever you want. Personal autonomy. But Christina Bieber Lake, who's a professor at Wheaton and also the author of Prophets of the Post-Human, she challenges this idea that the good life is found in personal autonomy. Here's what she says. If I value my personal freedom highest, what happens to my neighbor? If personal autonomy is the highest good, we are more likely to see other people as things to be used for our own gain rather than persons who deserve to be cared for or even to be loved. Ethics that begins with one's personal freedom instead of one's personal responsibility to the other is doomed to fail. If what is good and what is right starts with my own personal autonomy and freedom, then that is doomed to fail because if all I care about is myself, what happens to my neighbor? The Bible teaches us that goodness and rightness doesn't begin with personal autonomy, but it begins with personal responsibility to others. Here's how Jesus taught this principle in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. Jesus calls his disciples to himself and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a hard teaching of Christ. But as Christians, we are committed to following in his footsteps. Even though this is a hard lesson, we are committed to obey it, to do it, to live it out. As Christians, we should not treat other people like slaves to be used for our own ends, but we should wake up each day asking how we can serve others. Now, is that how I live? Is that how you live? When you're talking to the teller at the bank and they're not able to uh, give you exactly the answer you're looking for right away, how do you react? Do you treat that person like a slave that's there to serve you and meet all of your needs and why aren't they doing their job? Or do you treat them as a human being, somebody worthy to be loved and cared for? When you're on the phone with customer service and they're not getting you the solution that you need because whoever answered the phone is at the bottom of the food chain in their organization and they don't really have the authority to do what you need. Do you treat them like they're a piece of garbage who can't help you? Or do you treat them like a human being who's worthy to be loved, right? That, this is what Jesus is talking about. This is what life is all about. It's not about personal freedom and personal autonomy. It's about our responsibility to other people. 
And this is what we're committed to as disciples of Jesus. The question is, how do we do it? How do we do it practically in the day-to-day? How do we consider the needs of others like Jesus did? That's how Jesus lived, so how do we live like Jesus? How do we serve others like Christ? And in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul uh, sort of builds on this idea with some practical, hands-on advice that we can apply to our lives day in and day out. Let's read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In these verses, the Apostle Paul shows us how to consider the needs of others like Jesus did. And the first thing that he teaches us is that we must recognize the need for unity. If we're going to serve others like Christ, we need to see the value of being united. This is what he says in the opening uh, couple of verses there. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Now, when I was studying this this week, it really stood out to me. Look at all the things they have already in verse one. They have encouragement in Christ. They have comfort from love. They have participation in the spirit. They have affection and they have sympathy. They have a lot, but Paul says it's not complete. You have all of these things, but one more thing will complete my joy. Here's the one thing, unity. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, unity will complete his joy. Unity is so important if we're going to treat others the way Jesus did. Now we have to understand what unity is. Unity is not uniformity. That's a common mistake in our culture, common mistake among Christians. We think unity means we're all the same, but that's not true. Unity is not uniformity. We're not all the same age. We're not all the same season of life. We're not all, we don't all dress the same. We may not all vote the same. We may not all drive the same kinds of cars. Well, I'm American. Well, I'm Japanese. Well, I'm German, whatever. Like we're, that's, we're not all the same. That sameness is just uniformity. It's not unity. In fact, uh, Paul David Tripp uh, in his book, Marriage, that's the title of the book, Marriage. Uh, it's a fantastic book. He actually writes it to married couples. I use it in premarital counseling. It's one of the best books on marriages I've ever read. Um, Paul David Tripp, the book, Marriage. So I would encourage you to check that book out. But anyway, Paul David Tripp, in his book on marriage, 
he says that unity actually requires difference. If you don't have difference, you really don't have unity. And here's how he says it, using these little uh, math problems. He says, love minus difference is uniformity. If we all love each other and we're all the same, we're really not united, we're just all similar. We all think the same, we all vote the same, we all have the same positions on all the same issues, right? We're really not in unity, we're just uniform. So love minus difference is not unity, it's just uniformity. Difference minus love is division. That's what we see all around us in our society today. Oh, we agree on nine issues, but disagree on one, I hate your guts, right? You have a, a blue sticker on your car, you have a red sticker on your car, you guys can't get along. You have to hate each other forever, right? If we're not a, perfectly in agreement on every political issue, on every theological issue, on everything, then we hate each other, we can't be alike. No, 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 no. That's not, there's no unity in that. There's just division and anger and hatred and that's what we see tearing our nation apart right now because we have difference but no love. And Paul Tripp says, if you have love plus difference, then you get unity. I love you in spite of our differences. We, we don't see eye to eye on everything, but we love one another because we are united not by a political interest, not by uh, some um, music interest, not because we all like to go trout fishing, not because we all like to ride motorcycles on Saturday. We're united because we belong to Jesus and we have his Holy Spirit. You have his Holy Spirit, I have his Holy Spirit, and therefore, even though we're different in other ways, we love one another, right? Love plus difference equals unity. And that is a uniquely Christian form of unity. Because as Christians, we consider the needs of others, not just those whose uh, interests align with our own, but those whose interests are different than ours. Those who are, are on opposite ends of the political spectrum and we still love them and consider their needs. That makes it a uniquely Christian thing. This is where we get the saying, unity is where love meets diversity. Right, because unity requires difference and love. And if we're going to consider the needs of others like Jesus did, we need to remember the value and the importance of loving those who are different, and that is true unity. Second lesson that Paul gives us, in order to consider the needs of others like Jesus did, we must cultivate humility. To serve others like Jesus does, we need meekness. Jesus said, blessed are the meek in the Beatitudes. Meekness, humility, it's so important in order to do what Jesus did. Here's what Paul says about humility in Philippians chapter two, verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. This goes right against the grain of pop culture. Count others as more significant than yourselves. I'm not the most important person in the room just because I'm standing on stage and have a Britney Spears mic attached to my face. <laughs> right? No. We count the needs of others, we consider the needs of others, we count other people as more significant than ourselves. That is the Christian way, that's what disciples of Jesus do, it's humility. 
Now, what is humility? I like this definition from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, a really humble man will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I heard a pastor one time sort of rephrase this idea to say humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility isn't, well, I'm, I'm no good at the piano. I'll never be Jeff. Jeff Lackner is so much better at the piano than I am. Oh, I'm, I can never sing like Steve. I just, no, I'm, not, I'm not a good singer. You know, well, I, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never measure up. I'm, I'm, you know, that's not humility. Humility is not even thinking of yourself at all. It's thinking of other people. As long as I'm thinking about myself, whether my thoughts are good thoughts about me or whether my thoughts are bad thoughts about me, I'm not humble because my thoughts are all about me, right? But humility is not thinking of yourself at all. And I think as Christians, one of the things that we need to learn is that following Jesus is not a spiritual self-help program. It's not. There's so many things in our society that are set up to be self-help programs, right? Uh, go to college, go to school, whatever, get the highest education you can so that you can achieve everything intellectually that you're supposed to. And then get your career and climb the ladder so that you can uh, achieve the, the top of, the, of career success and have kids and put them in every single activity under the sun and raise them up and get them college scholarships so that you can achieve everything as a parent. And then uh, go to the gym and, and drink green shakes and eat really healthy healthy and do all this stuff so that you could be the best you physically. Oh, and by the way, now you can be a Christian and then you can be the best you spiritually. It's just another spiritual self-help program. But that's not biblical Christianity. Following Jesus is not a spiritual self-help program. It is a relationship with God. Now he changes us. He makes us better. He calls us up. He sets us free. But that's not the, the main point, is not I'm not following Jesus so that I can be all I can be. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's about humility. It's not about myself at all, right? Now, how do you know if you struggle with pride or if you lack humility? There are a lot of different ways that you could figure that out. One of the ways that's most effective for me when I realize that I'm struggling with pride or I'm lacking humility is to ask how easily offended are you? Do you get offended really, really easy? How dare that person say that to me? I can't believe they texted that to me. Uh, do, you get a, do you get really offended and, and super angry when somebody says or does something? Well, that's a sign that you lack humility. You think, well, I'm better than that. That person shouldn't talk to me that way, right? That is a sign of pride, how easily offended you are. And we need to cultivate humility and fight against pride if we're going to love others the way Jesus loved them. Uh, in his book, Life Together, Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany during the World War II era, he was actually executed for resisting the Hitler and the Nazi regime. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, Together gives five practical ways to cultivate humility. And I wanted to share them with you. First of all, understand that you are a sinner and are only here because of God's grace. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners, we're here because of God's grace. We didn't earn the right to be here. I don't have the right to come and, and call on the name of God unless I have the grace of God, unless my, my sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ because I've given my life to him and repented of my sin. Then I can be here, not because of me, but because of him, because of what he did. We have to remember that. 
Sometimes when Christians get to following Christ for decades, we forget that we're still sinners and still need Jesus. And we tend to look down on others who are struggling. So first way to cultivate humility, understand, remember, you're a sinner and you're only here because of God's grace. Number two, hold your tongue or refuse to speak uncharitably about others. I'm just going to shut my mouth and, and refuse to say something negative about somebody else. Even though I want to. Hold your tongue, right? That's a way to cultivate humility. Number three, refuse to consider your time so valuable that you cannot be interrupted to help with unexpected needs. Well, my time's more important than your need. That's a very prideful thing to say. No, put yourself at others' disposal. That's a way to cultivate humility. Number four, pray for the people who annoy you. Bonhoeffer didn't use the word annoy. He used some other word. Uh, I thought it was easier to understand if we just said annoy. <laughs> right? Pray for the people who annoy you. And, and that doesn't mean pray that God will make them go away. <laughs> that means pray for their blessing. That person that's annoying you, God bless them. Dump loads of blessing on their life. And when you start praying that way, it might not change them, but it will change you and it will bring humility to your life. Uh, number five, listen long and patiently so that you understand another's actual need. Actually listen to what they're saying. I, I don't know, I, I struggle with this sometimes where Corinne's telling me something and I'm already thinking of my response before she's finished talking and then I'm not really paying attention. Right, I think that's uh, generally a husband thing to do. Uh, but it takes practice, like stop, listen, listen long, listen patiently. Really try to understand what that person is saying, what their needs are, what their opinion and perspective is. They might be totally on the opposite side of the fence from you. But if you don't stop and listen to them, you'll never have an opportunity to speak grace and truth to their need. Do you ever notice in the Bible how people would come to Jesus and ask a question and he answered a different question that they didn't ask? He does that all the time. Like I get really frustrated when I read the Gospels because somebody asks Jesus a question and he gives an answer and I'm like, you didn't answer their question. Why, did, why does he do that? Because he looks past the question to see what they really need. And the answer he gives them is the answer they really need, not necessarily the answer they're asking for or looking for. And he does that with us. He does that with me all the time. Ah, Jesus, I need this. God, I need this. I need direction here. And I don't hear it. But instead he answers this other thing over here that's actually really what I needed to hear. Right? He does that all the time. And we can learn to find the needs behind what people are asking for if we listen long and patiently. And then we can love them and care for them like Jesus does because we actually know what it is they need. Number three, uh, from Philippians, number three, to consider the needs of others like Jesus did, we must follow his example. To serve others like Christ, we need to live how Jesus lived. And you say, well, that sounds like a circular sentence. In order to be like Jesus, we need to be like Jesus. Yeah, it's really kind of that easy. If you wanna be like Jesus, be like Jesus. Sometimes in Christianity, we make things so complicated. But really, at the end of the day, it's just if you want to do what Jesus did, we'll go and do what Jesus did. 
And I, you don't need a seminary degree to, 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 to say that, right? It, but if you want to do what Jesus did, if you want to consider the needs of others like he did, then follow his example. Look at what Paul writes in, second, or in Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our example. New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger in his book, The Cradle, the Cross, and the Crown says this, Jesus was God, yet he humbled himself, not once, but repeatedly, in an ever-descending sequence from God to man, from man to slave, from obedient slave to death, a humiliating death on a shameful Roman cross. In this, Jesus became a model for his followers to imitate. If our Savior, if our Messiah, if our rabbi, if our king, if the son of God, our creator, can humble himself over and over and over, even to the point of a humiliating death on a shameful Roman cross, surely we can set ourselves aside and consider the needs of others as more important than our own needs. Surely, if Jesus could do that, surely we can think of someone else first before thinking of ourselves first. If that's what Jesus can do, surely we can follow his footsteps. I don't think any of us are called to have nails put through our hands and feet and to be whipped within an inch of our lives. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, to consider the interests of others not just our own interest, to count others as more significant than ourselves. We are called to do that. And if Jesus could humble himself repeatedly over and over again, surely we can too. If you want to see a modern day example of this kind of self-sacrificing humility and love, if you want to see a modern day example, one of the best modern day examples I have ever seen is a mom. Moms are a beautiful example, a picture of Christ-like love. Moms carry their babies in their bodies for nine months while their babies literally eat them, right? The nourishment that should be nourishing a mother's body is being passed on to her baby in the womb. Self-sacrificial love, right? When the baby is born, the mom cares for it. A lot of moms nurse their, their children, continuing to nourish their baby from their own body. Mom, uh, being a mom is a thankless job. It's a difficult job. In our society, being a mom is kind of laughed at and looked down upon. Women are told they're not really uh, anything special unless they, have, unless they have a big fancy career. Now, I'm not saying that women shouldn't have careers or shouldn't work. I'm not making a comment about that at all. I'm just saying our society does not value motherhood, because I think one reason why is because motherhood is the opposite of self-actualization. Motherhood is the opposite of personal autonomy and personal freedom. When you're a mom, you don't have personal autonomy and freedom anymore. When you're carrying a child in the womb, you can't go out and get, uh, have a, a, a beer bender on the weekend because it will damage the baby that's in your womb. This is why 
abortion is such a huge issue in our culture and our society. And you see over and over and over again, when legislation is brought up to protect the unborn child, it's voted down. Why? Because people don't want any hindrance on their personal freedom and autonomy. And they don't recognize that if you have a child growing in your body, it's not just a clump of tissues like a giant wart. It is a human being in the womb and you are personally responsible to that human being that you are carrying and nourishing. And nobody values that in our society except Christians. We see the value of the unborn. We see the value of the human being and we should celebrate the self-sacrificial love of a mother because it is a beautiful and incredible picture of the self-sacrificial love of Christ for us, who gave himself up for us, who gave his body up on the cross so that we could have life. This is who Jesus is, and we should follow his example. And if you wanna know what that looks like, just look around the room, because we've got a bunch of moms and a bunch of babies, and I like it, it's fun. Uh, uh, let, me, let me wrap all this up. If we're going to consider the needs of others, we need to recognize the value of unity. We need to cultivate humility and we need to follow Jesus' example. And we, the way that we do that, the way that we do that is by finding our freedom in Christ, not in personal autonomy. So find your freedom in Jesus, not in personal autonomy, personal freedom, remove any limits. No, find your freedom in Christ because here is the wonderful thing about Jesus. He sets us free from the tyranny of self. Jesus sets us free from a lot of things. He sets us free from sin. He sets us free from death. He sets us free from fear. He sets us free from the tyranny of self. This is how Paul says that in Philippians 2. He says, Jesus was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then in verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are a lot of, there's a lot of truth packed into those verses, but here's what I want us to take away from that. Life is not about me. Life is not about you. Life is about Jesus Christ. God, is in, God has not exalted you or me to the highest place. He's not given you or me the name that is above every name. He has given that to Christ, to, to Jesus Christ. So I am free from having to self-actualize. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to make sure that I, I do something big and significant in order to matter. I don't have to prove my worth as a human being. I don't have to prove my value. I don't have to justify my existence. I don't have to, to show somebody else that I'm somebody worth loving. I don't have to do that because life isn't about me. I don't have to remove all the limits to me getting whatever I want and indulge every fantasy that I have because life's not about me. If I don't get to, to go trout fishing this weekend, it's not like my whole life is over because I, I better do all my hobbies because that's part of my self-actualization. No, it doesn't matter. Life's not about me. Life is about Jesus Christ. And we are set free from the need to justify our own existence and prove that we're somebody that's worth loving because it's not about that at all. It's about bringing glory to God. 
the highest need at the top of the pyramid isn't self-actualization. It's glorifying Jesus Christ. And when we do that, when we live for him, we are set free from the tyranny of self. I don't have to post my Instagram perfect life all over my social media so that everybody says, wow, that guy's really cool. Doesn't he have it all together? It's not true. I don't have it all together. And I am cool, but I don't have it all together. Right, because it's not about that, it's about Jesus. That's the whole point of life. And once we are set free from ourselves to be who God created us to be in Christ, now we are free to love others without expecting anything in return, to be generous toward others without expecting anything in return, to share love and grace and truth with others without expecting a thank you note in the mail. We're free to to be the disciples of Jesus that we've been called to be because we're not trying to prove ourselves. Let's put up the very last slide. Today is the last last, uh, sermon in this series that we've been on about following Jesus together and what it looks like to be a Christian or to be a disciple. And we said, what does that look like? What What do you do as you're following Jesus? Well, that's the what. Come to Jesus, turn away from your sin, and come to Jesus. Become like him, and then share him with others. That's what you do as a Christian. That's what the whole Christian life is all about. Coming to Jesus, becoming like him, and sharing him with others. But how do you do that? Well, you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You live by the word of God, and you belong to the church If you don't have the spirit or you don't have the word or you don't have the church, if you're missing even one of those ingredients, you will not be able to take those steps with Jesus. You'll stall out, you'll wander away, you'll get lost, right? So how is be filled with the spirit, live by the word, belong to the church? And then who do you follow Jesus together with? God, self, and others. Our goal as human beings is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As Christians, we find ourselves in Jesus. We, we, our identity is defined by Christ. Identity is given by God, not created by us. And then we live like Jesus did. We consider the needs of others. We love others and serve them the way Christ did. This is really how you be a disciple of Jesus. It's not more complicated than that. It's not always easy but we have the Holy Spirit and we have the word and we have the church, the brothers and sisters in Christ and we are following Jesus together. Let me pray and then I'll invite Ben up to come and close our service. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you didn't just uh, tell us what we should do, but you actually lived it. It's not a uh, practice what I preach, not what I do type of thing. No, you actually showed us what this looks like by giving your life on the cross in my place, in place of everyone who's here in this room. And I, there may be people that are here or that are watching online that have never really received that life. They're still holding on to their old self. And Lord Jesus, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would call them to acknowledge that they have been living for themselves, acknowledge their sin, and receive 
your grace as they turn away from that sin and surrender their life to you. Thank you for paying the penalty of our sin on the cross. We should have died on the cross, but you died in our place and paid that penalty for us. So I'm thankful for all those things and I pray that you would call people to uh, give their life to you, to surrender their life to you and to begin to follow you. And Lord Jesus, as we do that, would you fill us with the Holy Spirit? Would you, uh, would you give us just the, the strength and the peace that comes from being near to you? Would you help us to grow in our understanding of your word and the wisdom that comes as we know more about who you are and what you've uh, showed us in this book? Written thousands of years ago, but so relevant and applicable today. And would you increase the love and the affection that we have for one another as your church, as your family, as we enjoy being together in your presence, whether it's on a Sunday morning, whether it's in costumes and an old-fashioned hymn sing, or whether it's something else. Would you increase our affection for one another? Help us to love you with everything that we are. Speak to us about who we are in your kingdom. And would you give us the humility and the grace that we need to consider the needs of others like you did? It is not easy to put others first, especially when they are difficult people to love. But by your grace, we can do it. And I pray for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.